back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strong and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to the season four premiere. Yeah, it is the premiere. It's, it's a the brand premiere. new year, new us, new year, new LGH. New location. Right. We're borrowing a friend's recording studio. It's super nice. And we were just reminiscing on those times where we were in that a recording studio of a friend's where there was like a used condom on the ground wow. and the hair extensions. And we were just thinking now time. we're in a recording studio that is very professional. And doesn't have a used condom on the ground. No. Which really, this is a great character arc. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, I've been telling Alyssa okay this season is the season that we're gonna be super professional which she probably is just like okay coming from Natalia like that probably means nothing you <laughs> no, know you're right we we gotta be more professional it's gonna be I mean you can't get much worse than recording right. in a like cracked in right with a used condom and a hair extension on the ground yeah you can't but we're currently looking at office space because um the metaphorical cracked in was that we were recording at most recently started charging us so much it was over a thousand dollars a month yeah and as you guys probably noted in the last couple episodes of last season there was constant noise in the background right there would be like people People tap dancing around on the roof, like yeah. people dropping dead bodies and dragging them across the floor. <laughs> and you could hear every little movement. And it was like, what are we paying for if you guys can't even soundproof properly? I know. And I wanted to spill the tea so many times, but it was like awkward because we were in the room with the people that actually like ran the place and they were there. And I just wanted to be like, what kind of idiots <laughs> run this piece of shit business this way? Like, listen to like what wh how they were emailing, you know? Yeah. Like what fucking scam artist? Right are MacGyvering a studio in a loft space and not soundproofing it, but charging a thousand dollars a month. Right. And they had us by the balls because we didn't have anywhere to record. So we're trying to change that. Office space is cheap in LA right now. We've been looking at a few places and uh, I think we're getting really close to I think so too. finally having our own space. But for today, we are in a professional recording studio, which is very, very nice as well. Very nice. Very appreciative of the people who allowed us to be here. And it's yes. Yes. Do you want to shout them out? Yes. So I at Mikey Blaster on Instagram. This is my friend from high school. I've known him forever. Actually, I think I've known him from seventh grade. And he's like a famous musician in this band called Mount Joy. And he has like a real recording studio. I'm looking around. There's like fucking 15 different kinds of pianos. Yeah, one there's of a them, lot of keyboards. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. One of them looks like it's legit from 1700. Yeah. Like, yeah, we walk in and the first thing we see is a ghost painted on the wall and then a very haunted looking piano behind right. it. So this is very serendipitous. We're right at home. Thank you so much, Mikey Blaster and Mount Yes. Joy. And I knew it was nice when we were offered espresso and I was like, oh, thinking it was going to be like a Keurig cup. And we go there and there's a real fucking espresso machine, like the shit where you have to like use tools and then we realized we don't know how to do that <laughs> so we abandoned that and now we're recording i would also just like to tell any new listeners out there who may be listening to us for the first time 
that we are now on TikTok yeah. at Let's Get Haunted. And I'd like to give a very special shout out to 1017 from the fan discord for helping me figure out TikTok, basically. Yeah. I like, couldn't figure out how to post a clip and I was getting really frustrated <laughs> because my phone's a piece of shit and my computer's a piece <laughs> of shit. So I reached out on the discord and 1017 was a real one and helped me get a clip and I uploaded it. Thanks, 1017. Yeah, and check out our TikTok because we have been posting there. And uh, yeah, help us out, guys. Yeah, and if you have any clips that you want to suggest that we post on our TikTok, Mm -hmm. you can go to our subreddit, which is r slash let's get haunted, where there's always something happening on the subreddit. Yes, there is. Some drama, some fun time. And Mm -hmm. you can go post a clip or suggest a clip that you want us to post. Yeah, awesome. Well, Natalia, without further ado, do you just want to get into today's episode? I do. I really do. I'm really interested in, in what you're going to tell me, like what other hauntings this universe has in store. I think you're really going to like this one. And let me tell you why. When you think of Let's Get Haunted, what episode pops into your mind first? Uh, The Lost Dutchman's Gold Mine. All right. God damn it. That's not what you were supposed to the say. The Whaley. That one, not that the one. The Diat Love Pass. Yes, yes. Yes. First try. Yes, that's right. The <laughs> Diat Love Pass incident. That is one of the episodes that we did in the past. It was I our feel... first episode, and I think it was the best. I don't think we can ever. I mean, season one premiere. Right. Now we're talking about character arcs. Yeah. Now I'm bringing a very similar story to the season four premiere. What? Okay, so I remember the Diot Love Pass. If you haven't seen the episode or listened to the episode, there's no time to explain. But basically, long story, a bunch of like hot young Russian people yeah. went into a forbidden uh, forest. There was a bunch of snow and they all mysteriously died. And we're not exactly sure what happened. And haters will say it was an avalanche or hypothermia. And the real ones are like, but why? That's right. Right. Yes. Okay, good. Glad we're on the same page. Natalia, 34 years after the infamous tragedy now known as the Dyatlov Pass incident, another disaster would strike the former Soviet Union. No. In fact, what happened in the summer of 1993 is so eerily similar to the Dyatlov Pass that it has sparked rumors of conspiracies discussed for years in the dark recesses of internet message boards. What? Natalia, have you ever heard of the Hamar Daban incident? No. Is that Russian? That is Russian. Is that a, a person? What is that? I don't know that language. Very, very well. good. Very good question. <laughs> These are all excellent questions. But I'm going to need to ask you first to put on your robe and buckle the fuck up because oh. it's about to be a wild ride. Oh, I'm so ready. I'm so ready. I'm buckled up. Okay. First, let me paint you a picture of where our story takes place today. In episode 69, which went live on 420 last year, (laughs) we talked for a long time about the geography of Russia, and in particular, the geography of a place called Siberia. Mm -hmm. Natalia, do you remember this? Yeah, basically we learned that Russia was the entire Earth, and the rest of us are just like little specks in Russia's globe. That's correct. Right. So if any listeners would like to hear us go super in-depth about some of the unique culture and history of this part of Russia, then you should definitely go give episode 69 a listen. And since we've already covered it once, I'm just going to go ahead and keep it somewhat brief in Mm -hmm. the intro for this episode. So as I said, our story today takes place in Siberia. 
Siberia, as we learned in episode 69, is huge. In fact, it occupies about three quarters of Russia. Most of our listeners are likely listening in countries that are divided into provinces or states or something similar. Because of that, you may be thinking that Siberia is the equivalent of a state or a province. But if you're thinking that, you'd be wrong. Siberia actually has no precise definition because it is a geographic and historic region and not a political entity. According to Wikipedia, quote, Traditionally, Siberia extends eastwards from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific Ocean and includes most of the drainage basin of the Arctic Ocean. The river Yenizi divides Siberia into two parts, known as Western Siberia and Eastern Siberia. Siberia stretches southward from the Arctic Ocean to the hills of north-central Kazakhstan and to the northern parts of Mongolia and China. The central part of Siberia was considered the core part of the region in the Soviet Union. Beyond the core, Siberia's western part includes some territories of the Ural region. Siberia is vast and sparsely populated, covering an area of over 13.1 million square kilometers, or over 5 million square miles. But it's home to only one-fifth of Russia's population. So, to refresh your memory, Natalia, I'm going to show you a picture of the approximate geographical region known as Siberia. I didn't know that Siberia wasn't an actual, like, entity on a map. It's just more of an idea of a historical place. Right? Isn't that interesting? There's no precise definition of where its borders lie. So I have two maps here to show you just how contested uh -huh. the actual region is. So on this side, we have Siberia in orange. Right. And then on this side, it shows Siberia and different parts that have in the past been considered parts of Siberia. Right. Okay. So the maps that I'm looking at, there's a whole map of Russia. And then, like Alyssa said, there's pieces of it that are highlighted. The first map, it looks like about one quarter of the map is highlighted. And in the second map, there's over three quarters of Russia is considered Siberia. So... I really want to know who's Siberia. That's right. And yeah. who made this decision and why has Siberia been uh, decreased in size over the years? Right. Sounds like its own conspiracy on its own. I'm guessing that a Siberian said that three quarters of Russia was yeah. Siberia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a safe bet now that you say that. So if you guys are picturing the giant fucking country of Russia, just think of Siberia as probably being a big part of the middle. Right, right. Yeah. It's either if you're listening to the first the first map, it's the middle of Russia. And if you're listening to the second map, it's the whole right side of Russia. Yeah. It's like everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So listeners may also recall that besides being unofficially divided into these different historical regions like Siberia, Russia is also politically divided up into 85 federal subjects which can then be further divided up into different classes known as republics, oblasts, territories, which are also known as krais, and autonomous districts. So it's kind of a complicated geography, mm -hmm. at least for my small American brain. Yeah, it seems really intense. Right, it does. Right. Seems very Russian. Today's story is called the Hamar Daban Incident because it takes place in the Hamar Daban mountain range, which is located in the Republic of Buryatia. So, Natalia, I'm going to show you a map 
of where Buryatia is located. And it's actually a map that I made on Google Maps because I want you to see where it is in relation to some of the other stories we've talked about that take place in Russia. Okay. To the far left, we have the Dyatlov Pass incident. Okay. Down here is uh, the the Hamardaban incident. Okay. And then up here are the Copper Cauldrons. Oh, wow. So our first episode is on the far western side of Russia. And then the 69th episode, which was our second Russian episode, um, was all the way over on the other side of Russia. And then it looks like where this next incident that you're about to tell me about takes place sort of in the middle, maybe even like a little further east of the middle of those two places. But it's literally right above Mongolia. Yes, correct. Yeah, that's like exactly where it is. It's smack dab right above Mongolia. Perfect. Buryatia is in the southernmost region of Siberia, basically right above Mongolia. And I'm going to link to this map that I made uh, on our Instagram account so that you guys can go ahead and click around and see where all the different areas that we're talking about today take place. And there's actually a song written about and dedicated to the Hamardaban mountain range, Natalia. What? Would you like to hear it? Of course I would. So this song was written in 1962 by a man named Yuri Vizbor, oh. who, according to Wikipedia, was a well-known Soviet bard, poet, and actor. Love that for him. Do you know what he's saying? So I wrote down, I don't know what the lyrics mean because I don't speak Russian. Um, okay. But you can clearly hear him saying Hamardavan throughout the song, right. which is the name of the mountain range we're speaking about today. I feel like that's going to be the key to whatever the story is. Right. I just wanted to take a second to say that this guy is an absolute G. Yes. His photo is like literally a black and white photo of him wearing giant black sunglasses and smoking out of like a uh, like a tobacco yeah, pipe. Yeah, corn cob fucking yeah. pipe. Like <laughs> frosty the snowman. Looking off into the distance as if he like doesn't give a fuck whether he lives or dies. That's right. <laughs> so this song was written in the 1960s and the story we're talking about today takes place in the 1990s. Oh. But I wanted to show you that song to just kind of show how significant this mountain range is in right. Russian culture. Okay. And Yuri Vizbor, the guy who was singing that song, is like a very beloved um, a very beloved songwriter and folk singer mm -hmm. and even an actor. He was an actor in both theater and in movies wow. during the Soviet era. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if he's talking about Hamardaban, then you know there's some shit going on with Hamardaban. Totally. Yeah. God bless the Russians. That's right. So there are a few different spellings of Hamardaban, and I wanted to address this because if any of you have heard this story before, or if you decide to do your own research after listening to this, you might be confused about why we're pronouncing it Hamardaban. The most popular spelling is actually spelled K-A-M-A-R-Daban. Mm. And then the second most popular is C-H-A-M-A-R, Daban. So when you're listening to English-speaking people talk about this story, a lot of them will say Kamar Daban or mm -hmm. Chamar Daban. Mm. But as we just heard from the song, it's pronounced Hamar Daban. Right. Like an H noise. 
you're doing the full Russian that's right we're gonna try yes. to do it justice and i'm sure we will mispronounce every other word in this episode <laughs> but at least we have hamar down correctly according to several russian tourism websites the hamar daban mountain range is one of the oldest on earth and runs from east to west approximately 350 kilometers or 217.5 miles so to put that into perspective, if you're familiar with California geography at all, that's about the same distance as it would take to get from San Diego to Santa Barbara up the coast. Oh, wow. So it's a pretty long mountain range. Yeah. So now that we have some background, let's get into today's story. On August 9th, 1993, a group of tourists from Kiev, Ukraine, were paddling down the remote Snezhne... <laughs> Oh, let me try to say that again. I wrote down how to pronounce it. The remote Snezhne. What does it say? It's like that, but it's pronounced Snezhne. 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 What? Snezhne. Snezhne. I can't. It's... Okay, Paddle, you guys, we're doing our best. On August 9th, 1993, a group of tourists from Kiev, Ukraine, were paddling down the remote Snezhne River on a kayaking expedition. The river, which starts in the Hamardaban Mountains, runs 107... <laughs> Hold on, I try. I'm going to put, like, spooky music in the okay, background. Okay, 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 okay. Sorry, I'm just that name. All right. <laughs> The river, which starts in the Hamar Daban Mountains, runs 107 miles total, eventually feeding into nearby Lake Bacal. As the group of kayakers made their way down a calmer section of the windy Snezhne, they took in the beauty of the river's sparkling glass-like water, the purple wildflowers dotting the edges of its riverbanks, and beyond that, the tall, lush trees of Buryatia's deciduous forests. But as the group floated peacefully along, listening to the sound of lapping water on rocks and twittering songbirds, something decidedly unnatural caught the eye of one kayaker. There, among the beauty of the broad-leaved trees, stood a figure. At first glance, it almost seemed like a hallucination to the kayaker. This section of the river was so remote that it required a lengthy, days-long hike to even enter the area. Was there really someone there amongst the trees? The kayaker blinked, trying to clear his eyes of the apparition, but it did not go away. Instead, the figure finally came into focus. It was a woman peering stone-faced and expressionless from behind a thin tree trunk. It was then that the kayaker realized that the woman was covered in blood. What? What? I mean, and then the story ends because they didn't care to find out. Right, right? because why would you stop? Right. So I just want, like, I want you to imagine you're in a remote part of the Siberian wilderness on a kayaking expedition with your friends, mm -hmm. you had to hike 
for several days to even get to this river. Mm-hmm. It's not just something where like you take a bus or a train, you get dropped off and you're like sick. I'm on this like whitewater yeah. rafting river. This is a excursion. This is not for like a novice kayaker. Right. This is like not beginner outdoor activity. That's right. Yeah. And this river's super fucking windy and it has rapids on it. But this particular stretch of the river is a little more calm. So they're kind of just like laying back, taking in the scenery. And I mentioned this because if they had been in the rapids part of the river, they wouldn't have seen. Right. They wouldn't woman. have noticed. No, they would be concentrating on not drowning to death. Yeah. Um, and so they see this woman mm-hmm. peering from behind a tree and as they get if they like kind of float closer to her they realize that she's just covered in blood like fresh blood or old blood like dried blood oh and this is like springtime i'm assuming yes this okay. is in the summer okay. summertime good question this is in august the kayaker whose name was alexander kvitnitsky had no way of knowing this at the time but he had just discovered the sole survivor of a massacre what massacre? So Natalia Was it her massacre? She did it? I can't I cannot tell you one way or another. I'm gonna have to have you draw your own conclusions at the end as to what happened. But first, I'd like to kind of show you a video that I found of the Snitschna River. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm trying my best to pronounce this. It is spelled S-N-E-Z-H-N-A-Y-A River. And I found this really, really cool YouTube video. I asked the guy for permission to use it, and he said it was cool. Um, And he talks to a Russian kayaker who explains kind of how you even get to this river. And he has a lot of footage from the 90s of this river. Oh, wow. Okay. So I just sent it to you on your phone. Welcome back to our series of videos about rafting in the former Soviet Union. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Vladimir Gavrilov, who is a very famous and respected rafter from the former Soviet Union and a good friend. And today we're going to talk about a new river. Vlad, where are we at today? Uh, We will go to a very interesting area, very close to Baikal, southeast of Baikal. Uh, We call this area Hamardaban on the name of a mountain range uh, that going along the shore of Baikal Lake. For people that don't know about Baikal, what is Baikal? Baikal is the greatest freshwater reservoir on the planet. Uh, beautiful, clean water. I would not advise to swim there. I tried once and it was a big mistake. Uh, it's a bunch of rivers that come to Baikal and only one river run. Uh, out Angara River, go to rivers um, Haramurin and Snezhne. So is this video about two different rivers? It's two different rivers. Okay. It's about 60 kilometers hike between them, uh, 40 kilometers hike uh, to first river, and then about 60 kilometers uh, hike to other river. Bad side uh, of this uh, region is it is very rainy. So this is that river, the, the, the yeah, second river. One of big rapids. And where did you guys get the idea to do this trip? Do, do people commonly do these two rivers together, or did you look at a bunch of maps and come up with this plan Either on your own? If people go to Hamardaban, they do both rivers together. Okay. Because one river, each of them is a little bit too short for you know summer trip. This little two-person boat looks really dangerous to me, Vlad. I would not choose this option. Zach, I'm still alive. (laughs) 
Can I just say I trust this guy with my life? I don't this... know why, but like the guy with the thick Russian accent, like right. there's something about him that's just super trustworthy and I would follow him off a cliff if he was like, this is what we're doing. I, okay, yes. <laughs> Do you understand how fucking stoked I was to find this video? This video has less than a thousand views. This guy, all he does is post videos about like kayaking and he interviews different people about kayaking. I love niche shit right. like that. No, this is awesome. I gave him a thumbs up. Okay, let me... Snezhna. Yeah, we were putting an extra syllable. Snezhna. 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 I can't. I can't do it. The Russian language is so <laughs> fucking interesting and beautiful, and I just, but I can't do it. It's too many like consonants in a row. It's like such an edgelord like language compared to the U.S. Like compared to English, we never use Z. I feel like ever right. like. You, you say zoo and that's it. I can't even think of another word that has Z in it. A zebra, maybe? Zealous. Yeah, but this is like every Z all the time, and I love that. I love it. Sniezhnya. <laughs> yeah, this is like super rapidy. Like, you're definitely, like, these people are like in waist deep water going through the, their boat is like not even a boat. Yeah. That's really dangerous to me, Vlad. Zach, I'm still alive. <laughs> Isn't this guy fucking dope? What a fucking legend. I know. Yeah. So Natalia, do you want to describe what that video looks like? And I'll post it to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram so everyone can look at what we're looking at. Yeah. So um big rapid river and it's just like all white caps and then you're watching I don't even know what kind of boat this is, because when I think of a kayak, I think of like a hard sided plastic like canoe sort of. And then you sit in it and you have what's called a skirt like around your waist that sort of goes over the hole to prevent any water from getting in the hole. And then you have like one oar that you're like dipping in the left and dipping in the right and you're like wearing a helmet or something, you know. This was just like people on what looked like if a Twizzler was made <laughs> into some sort of floating vessel. vessel. And they're like on their knees riding it. And the thing is going under the water more than it is above the water. Like that's what I meant. They're just in waist deep into what I'm assuming is probably super cold water. Yes, definitely. It's actually uh, the reason why it starts at the Hamardaban mountain range is because it's formed by melting snow in mm -hmm. the summertime. So it's super cold. Right. Yeah. And um, the boat. I, I don't know if this is on purpose or not, but the boat was not going straight. For the majority I was watching it, it was actually approaching obstacles sideways. And you would think to approach an obstacle, you would want to go from like the head of the boat on so that you don't like smash into, you know, but I'm also not an expert. So and clearly this yeah. man, as we just discussed, I would follow him into right. the night. Like yeah. he <laughs> knows what what's up. Totally. So, so I want to give a shout out to this YouTube channel because they were very nice and they were like, yeah, of course, use whatever clips you want. So this is uploaded to the channel Gear Garage on February 27th, 2018. The video is entitled USSR Rafting, the Karamurin and the Snezhne River <laughs> near Lake Baikal. So I'll put a link to that in the description if you guys want to go give them an upvote because they definitely deserve it. Totally. So now that you've kind of seen what the river looks like, you can see for yourself that it's very lush, right? Mm -hmm. Very green. Right. If you watch the full video, which we're not going to put the full video in this episode, but I encourage people to watch it, you can see how long it takes his group 
Vlad's group to even get to that river. First, they had to go down that first river. Mm-hmm. Then they hike for a couple days through the mountains and the forests, and then they get to the second river. This is a super remote location. Is yes, what we're hearing. That's correct. That's what I'm trying to drive home. So back to the story. The woman the Ukrainian kayakers had discovered on the shore of the river was emaciated and trembling. She was having trouble speaking at first as the kayakers asked her if she was all right. Her eyes were sunken and hollow, clearly exhausted. What was she doing all alone out here? The kayakers asked. Finally, the woman was able to tell them her name, Valentina Urochenko. And she had been part of a hiking expedition that had gone terribly wrong. It would be several years before Valentina, known as Valya among her peers, would be able to tell the full story of what happened to her on that trip. But what she would eventually tell investigators and the public would both shock and mystify the world. So let's get back to the beginning of this expedition and find out what led Valya to stumble alone to the Snezhne River that day. It all began in the summer of 1993, when 41-year-old hiking instructor Ludmila Korovina began assembling a group of her students in Petropavlovsk, Kazakhstan, for a hiking expedition. Is every story we tell going to have, from this area of the world, going to have like a Yuri and a Ludmila? Yes. Yeah. Literally every story. I know I was thinking and that too. And there was a Vlad we too, right? Yeah, Vlad. Yeah. yeah wow. Definitely. The expedition, I kind of like want, if I ever have a child, I'm like, I should name the child like yuri right i know I just i feel like we're so connected yeah to these stories now yeah i mean i'm like if it isn't broke don't fix it right like right. this good name name everyone that yeah, right yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the expedition was to take place in the hamardaban mountain range in the former soviet union and would be classified as a level four difficulty hike So those who have heard the story of the Dyatlov Pass incident may remember that that particular hike was classified as a level three difficulty. Oh, wow. So this is literally the next level. Yes, this is next level. Wow. So it's Dyatlov Pass, but next level. Yes. Okay. According to an article by Natasha Mullins for Medium.com, quote, Ludmila was an experienced hiking instructor and survivalist labeled as a quote-unquote master by her peers and her students. She was known for her tough love on her students, often pushing them very hard. Her students described her as being a good teacher that taught them confidence and crucial hiking skills. After months of meticulously planning the expedition, the group set out to the Russian city of Irkutsk by train. So they're leaving Kazakhstan. This group Mm -hmm. is from Kazakhstan, and they're traveling into Siberia, right, okay. the southern portion of Siberia above Mongolia. Ludmila was accompanied by six of her students, three of whom were boys and three of whom were girls. The first of the bunch was 23-year-old Alexander Sasha Kryson. So his name's Alexander, but he goes by Sasha. Okay. Whom Ludmila considered a son, even though they were not related by blood, since she had reportedly known him the majority of his life. Hmm. The rest of the group was comprised of 24-year-old Tatiana Filipenko, 19-year-old Denis Chvakin, 17-year-old Valentina Valya Urochenko, 16-year-old Victoria Zalasova, and the youngest of the crew, 15-year-old Timur Bapanov. And now I'm going to show you pictures of everyone. 
Okay. Oh, wow. This is like their photos look so much more old timey. Than, than you would imagine. Yeah. Right? So what year was it that they went hiking? 1993. This is so weird. These photos literally look like they're from the 60s. Well, I don't know when. I mean, the photo on the left, you can clearly see they're together in a hiking group, right? Right. So that's got to be more recent. The one on the right, I don't know if these are school photos or what. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's we'll talk about this later. But it's important to remember that this takes place in 1993 and the Soviet Union fell in 1991. Okay. So, so. I don't know how good their like technology y- and cameras were. Yeah. I was just thinking like I'm I mean, maybe this is just part of living in a country that was uh, undergoing those changes at that time, uh, like uh, the communism and all of that. Perhaps maybe some of their gear was outdated. But when I think of like hikers in 1993 and the rest of the world, I'm thinking like biking shorts like bright colored t-shirts sunglasses fanny packs um, like flipped up hats and then here i'm seeing a and and they're like color photos obviously these photos are black and white photos and they're like very overexposed which tells me that the technology was either you know not that great or whoever was using that camera didn't know how to use it very well which tells me that it's probably an older camera anyways and um, they, they, yeah, there's nothing that says 1993 about them. Like, yeah, it definitely look, it definitely looks older. Some of the girls are wearing bonnets as well, which is not something I'm accustomed to seeing um, people from like modern times wearing either. And yeah, but other than that, totally like a normal looking group of young, attractive, fit, healthy people. Yeah, they definitely look like they're in their prime, right? Like these are young people, either teens or in their 20s. The oldest is 41-year-old Ludmila, who is the instructor, so it makes sense that she would be older. But yeah, these look like very healthy, experienced. It kind of reminds me of... um... Hype House? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, no, I was going to say Girl Scouts. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of like scouts. They look like scouts. Right. And I also want to say, so I'll post all these photos, as you guys know, to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. It just occurred to me. I wonder if people who like have published articles about this story are trying to make it creepier by making the photos overexposed in black oh, and white. Oh, wow. Right. Like it's like a normal colored photo and yeah. they've gone through and sort of aged it. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Who knows? I do want to show you a close-up of Ludmila because she is who is in charge of this expedition. Okay, Ludmila. Yeah, very attractive woman. She, um, I'm looking at a woman who's got really cropped blonde hair and it's like styled and curly up by the ears. Um, yeah, again, I just, you know, the style there was just so different than the style in the U.S. at that time. Because I'm thinking 90s cropped bob is like a totally different look than this. This really looks like something that's like out of the 60s, you know, right. it's like a... Yeah, I definitely think, too, there is a little bit... I can see a little bit of 80s in it. Yeah. Which makes sense, sort of, because, okay, it's 1993. Because it's, like, big hair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, too. I wonder also, because before social media, before, like, the internet was widely used, trends didn't really go global as much. Like, even I remember in the early 2000s, going to Europe for the first time, thinking, like, oh, the Europeans, like, dress funny, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, they wear the... um, They were wearing, like, harm pants, like, drop crotch pants which I was like this is so funny and like high-waisted and we did not do that like it was all like low-waisted and flared pants were the rage 
at that time and you know now it's like everyone wears all the same like well and i'll say too i think living in california we were probably a little bit ahead of some of the 90s trends yeah um and i say that because i obviously grew up in the 90s and i had cousins living in louisiana and we would do family reunions every year and every year they would be like oh wow like have you heard this new song and it's like a song that dropped right. in la like two years ago yeah. and it, it just like stuff trickled hits, down yeah stuff hits yeah. different parts of the country and the world at different times totally but yeah. my point being that then before the internet it was like even more yeah definitely more, more definitely. so so like we said this group arrives by train to irkutsk and they hiked to the entry point of the mountain range on August 2nd, 1993, to begin their journey. Ludmila and her band of students were not the only expedition in the Hamar Daban during this time frame. Because the weather forecast was favorable during the week of August 2nd, there was actually two other hiking groups documented to be in the area at the same time. One of which was actually led by Ludmila's daughter, Natalia. What? Yes, she has your name. Oh, amazing. So maybe listeners are thinking that's like a weird coincidence, but actually it was not a coincidence. Ludmila had told her daughter, hey, me and this hiking group, we're going to go do this trail. This is like the perfect time to right. do it. Perfect weather. It's summertime. It's going to be great. And so she had told Natalia, who was in charge of her own hiking class, hey, why don't you take your group out at the same time? Mm -hmm. But to make it interesting and more fun and so that the kids can like kind of um, feel more... Like they're in charge, you know, like let's let's do it so that we're starting at separate trailheads uh -huh. and then we'll meet up with each other about like, you know, a couple days into the um, right. hike. Those two trailheads are on paths that cross and then we'll finish the trail together. Oh, OK. Yeah. So that's that's kind of a fun way to do it. Yeah. Right. That way the kids feel like they're on their own in the wilderness, yeah. you know, and they're learning. And well, they are. Yeah, they they're are. Literally on their they own. They totally in the are. Yeah. But I feel like if you're in a bigger group with two instructors, it might be a different dynamic. Right. Yeah. Totally. So they estimated that if they kept up a steady pace, both groups would arrive at this designated meeting point where the two paths crossed on August 5th where they would then continue the rest of the journey as one large group. While the exact timeline of the group's journey differs depending on which source you read, the story seems to go as follows. On August 2nd, Ludmila and her students hiked from the village of Murino along the Langatai River and traversed successfully through a passage known as the Langutaiskie Vorota Pass, which is sometimes referred to as the Langatai Gates Pass. They then made their way along the length of another river called the Barun Yunkatskuk and ascended the highest peak of Hamar Daban, named the Retransleator Peak, on August 3rd. The peak stands at an elevation of just under 8,000 feet. And I'm going to show you actually a picture of the group because they paused to take a photo once they reached this peak. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm looking at a uh, black and white photo again of a group of young people and they're standing at what looks at, like some sort of monument on top of a peak. So it's like, it looks like a, a, like a radio tower or something. It is, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're standing under it and um, I'm assuming that they're happy. I don't know, with these old photos, it's like hard to tell. It's kind of blurry. Uh, like you mentioned, a lot of these photos are overexposed. Mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of hard to tell. But yeah, if you zoom in, you can see that um, 
one of the people in the middle is like smiling and another person's kind of like doing a fist pump. Oh, nice. So they're definitely stoked to be at the peak. The group was making excellent time, having reached the top of the peak in just two days, pushing through heavy exhaustion in order to do so. After pausing at the peak for the photo we just saw, Ludmila led her students along the mountain ridge, ending up on a plateau near where the rivers Anigta and Baiga meet. It was here that the group camped out for the night, eager to meet up with Natalia's hiking group on August 5th. On the morning of August 4th, Ludmila and the students began descending the ridge they were camped on when suddenly they were hit with an unexpected rainstorm. It was unusual for storms to strike this part of Russia in the summer, and the weather forecast had not shown any chance of rain for the entire time they were supposed to be on their trip. Mm, haunted. The rain was so sudden that the hikers did not have time to run for cover, and soon their supplies and clothes were soaked through, adding even more weight to their already strained bodies. With morale waning, Ludmila surveyed the dejected faces of the young hikers and made the decision to stop the day's hike earlier than she had originally planned. She reasoned that perhaps the rain was just a bad cloudburst that would soon pass by morning, and after a night of refreshing sleep, the crew could continue on in higher and drier spirits. For some unknown reason, Ludmila made the decision to stop in a barren section of the mountains between the peaks of Golets, Yagelni, and Tritons. This area of Hamar Daban had absolutely no tree cover or shelter from the elements. It was just a flat section of the mountain with only rocks, grass, rain, and wind. This decision is especially puzzling when we consider that the area where the group ended up stopping for the night was only about 2.5 miles or approximately 30 minutes away from a safer, forested area where they could have made camp. Due to their choice of camping area on August 4th, Ludmila was unable to get a fire going for the hikers. After setting up their tent, the soaked students went to bed. The following morning of August 5th, the rain was not coming down quite as hard, and they were finally able to get a fire going to cook breakfast to eat together. After breakfast, the rain picked up and started falling harder, and some reports state that a nearby monsoon passing through Mongolia even brought down sheets of cold sleet over the Hamar Daban mountain range. Meanwhile, Ludmila's daughter Natalia reached the point where the two hiking paths converged sometime in the afternoon of August 5th. Natalia was not immediately alarmed that her mother's group was not there waiting. After all, the weather was absolutely horrible. Due to the rain, ice, and cold, Natalia made the decision to push onward, past the meeting point, and take her group further along the pathway, hoping to eventually hike out of the storm's path and meet up with her mother at a further point along the trail. But how is her mom going to know she's going to do that? Well, since they're both such experienced hikers... She'll be like, oh, she probably just did this because that's the logical thing to do. Right, because, like, why would you stop and wait for hours in basically snow? Right. Yeah. However, Natalia could have never imagined what her mother was going through at that very moment. Just four days later, 17-year-old Valya would be found abandoned, covered in blood, stumbling through the wilderness by the Ukrainian kayakers we discussed at the beginning of this episode. 
Through hysterical tears, Falia would recount a horrifying tale that would eventually launch an investigation into what had happened that day to her fellow hikers. According to Valia's story, on the morning of August 5th, the hikers awoke, got a fire going, and ate breakfast together. Despite the poor weather, the group was feeling much more optimistic after getting a good night's sleep. After breakfast, they packed up their supplies, loaded up their packs, and Ludmila began leading the group in the direction of the meeting point where Natalia was to be waiting for them. However, only a few short minutes into their journey, 23-year-old Sasha began to scream an ear-piercing, blood-curdling, primordial scream from the back of the pack. Alarmed, the students spun around in time to see Sasha gripping his face with white knuckles. Blood was running down his face from the corners of his eyes, his nose, and his ears. He began violently shaking, and a white foam poured from his mouth as he screamed. In an instant, he fell to the ground in convulsions before going completely still. It happened so quickly that Ludmila didn't have time to react until Sasha was already motionless on the ground. Panicked, she dropped her pack and ran to him, ordering the rest of the group not to look and to instead continue hiking onward and out of the elements. Sobbing, Ludmila fell to her knees and turned Sasha over on his back, shaking him and yelling his name, trying to get him to regain consciousness. The group obeyed Ludmila's commands and continued walking away from where Sasha lay, frightened and bewildered by what was happening. Hold on, he was like hit in the face or something? Like, there's where is the blood coming from? So, at this point, everyone gets up, everyone's totally fine. They eat breakfast together, they pack mm-hmm. up their backpacks, and they start walking. And you have to remember that it's kind of starting to like snow at this point. Right. And it's raining, visibility's not good. Ludmila, as the leader, is at the front of the pack. The next oldest guy is the guy that she considers her son, mm-hmm. and his name is Sasha, and he's at the back of the pack. Okay. So they're walking and they're trying to go towards the meeting point where they're going to meet the other group. But only a couple minutes into it, he starts screaming. And all they know at this point is they look back and he's just gripping his face as if he's trying to like peel his face off. And he it looks like he's crying blood. There, and there's also blood coming out of his nose and blood coming out of his ears. What? And then a white frothy foam, almost like rabies, right? Like is coming is from poisoned? his mouth. And like whatever he falls they, to the Whatever ground. they ate for breakfast, someone poisoned him? I mean, we don't know at this point, right? And everyone's just like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. And Ludmila, obviously, this is someone she considers her son. Yeah. So she's freaking out, Mm. goes and runs back to check on him. But she tells all the other kids in the group, like, keep walking, keep walking, don't look back. I'm going to, like, figure out what's going on. Right. Not more than two minutes pass before the students heard another scream coming from behind them. The students turned towards the scream, and this time they saw Ludmila herself on her knees next to Sasha with blood pouring from her eyes and nose before she collapsed unmoving on top of Sasha's body. 24-year-old Tatiana was the first to reach Ludmila and Sasha, and right as she did, she too began screaming at the top of her lungs tearing with her nails at her throat as if she was trying to loosen an invisible grip that was choking the air from her lungs. 
Valia and the remaining hikers, 19-year-old Dennis, 16-year-old Victoria, and 15-year-old Timur watched in horror as Tatiana, sputtering for air, crawled over to a nearby rock and began bashing her head into it. What? No, this is like... I have the chills. Supernatural. She bashed her head over and over and over, making horrible choking noises as she did. With each blow, the rock became more and more soaked with her blood. Finally, the teens heard the sickening crack of Tatiana's skull splitting open, and her body fell limp against the rock. Seeing their friend's limp body, Victoria and Timur, being the two youngest, ran for their lives while Dennis hid behind a rock, whimpering. Valya stood frozen in shock and horror, unable to move at all, unable to look away from Tatiana's mashed head. As Victoria and Timur ran, crying, they did not make it far before they themselves collapsed into convulsions, throwing up blood, seizing, and tearing their clothes off as they tried to crawl away from the vicinity of their dead friends. Valya finally snapped out of her stupor and turned to see Dennis, still hiding behind the rock. They made eye contact. Dennis ran to Valya and grabbed her hand, pulling her away from the nightmarish scene. As the two ran for their lives, suddenly Dennis went down too, a trickle of blood leaking from one of his eyeballs. Valya did not stop to help him up. She knew that he was already a goner. With only her tent and the clothes on her back, Valya ran faster than she ever had down the mountain path, only stopping when she had run the full two and a half miles to tree cover, where she promptly collapsed onto the ground and fell asleep from exhaustion. On the morning of August 6th, Valya awoke. As the trees rocking in the wind above her head slowly came into focus, she realized that she was still alive. The reality of her predicament began to set in. She was all alone, and there was no one left to save her. Thinking on her feet, Valya quickly realized that her only chance at survival was to hike the 30 minutes back up the mountain to the area where her friends' bodies were. If she was going to survive by herself in the wilderness, she would need all of the supplies she could get from the other hikers' backpacks. Loading her tent back onto her back, Valya carefully retraced her steps out of the forest and back onto the barren mountain ridge. As she came up over the hump of the pathway, she saw them. All six of the bodies of her fellow hikers were exactly where they had fallen the day before. None of them had moved, meaning that they had never had a chance at survival and had likely died nearly instantly. Cautiously, Valya hesitantly made her way over to her instructor's lifeless form, scavenging supplies from Ludmila's backpack. Once she had sufficient food, water, and clothing, she determined that her best chance at survival would be to follow the power lines down the mountain, hoping that she would eventually reach either civilization or at least another human. For four days, she stumbled malnourished through the wilderness, eventually reaching the river. Remembering the survivalist training Ludmila had taught her, she spread her sleeping bag along the shore near the water's edge, the universal hiker sign for SOS. It was there that the kayakers found her on August 9th. Now, Natalia, I'm going to show you a map of the journey that Valya took. Which one of these people is Valya? Because, like, immediately, I think she's sketch. So, Valya is 17 years old, and in the And group, a murderer. And... <laughs> 
And let me pull up the group photo and I'll show you which one she is. This That's her. This is Valia. This is her and this is her. I mean, sh- she looks like a baby. She looks like she's up to something. <laughs> I don't know what her motives are, but, you know, she's not smiling at hey, all. Hey, we're not ruling anything out. What do you mean? What What else could it be? I don't know. We're going to have to get into the theories. So this is the map of what the hikers did. Okay. So they were supposed to be doing like a U shape. Yeah, I see it. You start at Lake Bacall. You go around the mountain ridge. You end at Lake Bacall. And over here is where she's found. So they're along this pathway. And then she has to make, she makes a beeline. So I'm looking at, to paint this picture for people who are listening, the path, like Alyssa said, is a U shape. But then Valia, after the incident, instead of continuing along the path to get to the end of it, she goes the complete opposite direction, turning the U into a Y. Yes. Yeah. That's a great description. Yeah. And then decides, well, actually, I am a murderer, but I'm going to (laughs) try to live my life anyways, and goes back to the U shape. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect description. Uh, Let me ask you this. At this time, the like, could you... Was there anything keeping you? No, because they were coming from Kazakhstan, right? Like, yes, there would be like it's it's not communism in the sense that they couldn't leave whatever country they were at. Like, I'm just trying to think of whatever motives she would have. I don't really think that there is a clear motive, to be honest with you. And I think that's what makes this such an interesting, mysterious story. Yeah, because she's a 17 year old with her best friends on Mm -hmm. a hiking trip with a teacher that she's known for a very long time. Right. And not only are they on this hiking trip as a group, but there's another group out there that they Mm. know about that they're supposed to be meeting up with. Yeah. I'm wondering, did Valia say anything about not eating the breakfast or something like that? So she claims that they all ate the same food. Uh Uh-huh. So just keep that in mind as we continue on. And of course, we're hearing the story from her perspective because she's the only survivor. Correct. You guys... I'm going to give you some advice. If you're the only survivor in a massacre, either kill yourself or run away. But like, you're not going to come back from that. Everyone's no, yeah, think you got to you change it. your name. Yeah. You got to like move to a totally different country, learn a new language. Right. Shave your head, change your name. You're a loose end. It's yes. like when they say if someone breaks into your house and you shoot them, like you have to make sure they're dead so that way they can't sue you. Yes. It's like that, except different. Except- <laughs> basically you just got to tie up all the loose ends and if you're still alive you're now a loose end you are a loose end yes right and law enforcement will tie you up behind bars right that's right so at this point we're back at the beginning of the story Valia Mm -hmm. has run she has used the skills and the know-how and the survivalist techniques that Ludmila had taught all of them. And she knows that the brightest thing she has, apparently this is something very common. How are you going to catch people's attention? You're not because you're in the middle of the wilderness. So your best odds are to find a water source because water usually leads to civilization. Mm -hmm. And if you can't keep going, if you can't keep following the river, if you have to make camp, then you should lay out a brightly colored banner of sorts so that people passing by on the river will be able to see you. Okay. So the brightest thing she has is her, her sleeping bag. Okay. So she lays out her sleeping bag across the bank Mm -hmm. of the river and that is originally actually what catches the kayaker's eye. And then when he turns to look and see, hey, what's that bright color? He sees her lurking behind a tree trunk. Oh, my God. Just that looking word, like lurking. T- 
totally like kind of like how I look right now because I'm very <laughs> tired. Like just totally like sallow eyes, mm-hmm. sunken, dark circles under her eyes. She's dirty. She's covered in dried blood. She's emaciated. How many days had passed between her escaping from the massacre and her being found? Just a four. Day, four days. Okay. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought it was just one day. So she hiked by herself for three days. And then one of those days she was hiking away from the massacre and fell asleep, right? Yes. Okay. So, okay. So on August 4th, or excuse me, on August 5th, the massacre happens because uh-huh. August 5th was the day they were supposed to meet up with Natalia. Right. And instead of meeting up with Natalia, they all fucking die. Yeah. And then she runs away, falls asleep. The next morning she gets up, sees them, grabs, like scavenges things and then runs down to the river. Did this rain monsoon thing actually happen? Like, do we have proof that the rain or the sleet actually came? So there is, there are records of a monsoon in Mongolia around this time. Okay. And apparently it was so bad that some, like, residential areas of Mongolia had flooded up to a couple feet. Okay. So you would, like, walk out of your house and just be up to your, like, knees in water. Right. Yeah, that's not sanitary. No, not good at all. Obviously, the kayakers find her. She is able to, like, kind of tell them what happened, but she's so traumatized. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a 17-year-old, you have to imagine, like... You just watched all your best friends bleed from their eyes and die in front of you. So she's so traumatized that they're not exactly sure what happened. All she can really get out is like, I was in a hiking group. Everybody died. I don't know what to do. Like, I need help. Please help me. So they take her along on their kayak. They hike with her back to civilization. And the whole time they're like, don't fucking turn my back on this girl. Right. Like, (laughs) this is this is a problem. This is the equivalent of picking up like a a bloody, scary looking girl on the middle of the road at 3 a.m. This just reminds me of when we did the Hawaiian folklore episode and Kamu was which, by the way, if you guys haven't listened to it yet, no time to explain. Go back. Listen to it. (laughs) Excellent episode. Kamu did a great job. But remember when Kamu was telling us about like how there's a road near a cliff and every night like a ghost woman just throws yeah. herself off the cliff in yeah. front of your car right yes i remember that this is what this is the vibe that yeah that is giving me i know this girl is like don't trust so the kayakers travel with valia back to civilization and immediately bring her to the police so that she can tell her tale and hopefully they can send out some type of search and rescue to see Mm -hmm. if anyone's still alive or at least figure out what happened right Right. despite the police receiving this report within a few days of Valia being found for some reason that we still don't have an explanation for to this day no search and rescue mission was launched until August 24th which is nearly two weeks after the kayakers brought her to the police what were these kids up to? They are obviously en- enemies of the state or something. And that girl, Valia, is a mole. So there's, it's a little suspicious, right? Like, yeah. okay, a bloody, emaciated, dying girl right. shows up at your precinct and she's like, everyone's dead in the group I was with. And you're like, let's give it two weeks. Yeah, they're probably waiting for her to die or something. Waiting for her to die? Or were they waiting for something to go away at the site where the bodies were? Yeah. I mean... We don't know, right? right? We have no idea. So, like I said, no explanation for this delay has ever been given, though some reports explain it by saying that Valia was so shaken by what she had witnessed that it wouldn't be years before she would be able to tell the full story in detail. And due to this, coupled with the bad weather and the fact that she could not give an exact description of where her friends could be found, it took two days of searching by helicopter for authorities to find the fallen hikers. Now, to that, which that's kind of like the skeptic explanation of why it took so long, but... 
even so, okay, it took them two days by helicopter to find the bodies. That still leaves 12 days that yeah. they weren't doing anything. I'm finding it hard to believe that someone, no matter how traumatized they are, wouldn't tell you what you needed to know if you had a gun up to their head and they're like, listen, fucking tell me what it, where it is, what it right. is, you know, which makes me believe that the cops were for some reason not trying to extract the information from her. So I don't know. The whole thing is fishy. The whole thing is fishy. The only thing that like could maybe make sense about why they waited two weeks is would be if the monsoon lasted that entire time, then they couldn't drive or fly a helicopter through it. Mm -hmm. But I did not find any evidence that the monsoon lasted that long. I mean, this is Siberia, right? We're talking about like Russian people have a, I think, well-earned reputation for being tough, like probably Mm -hmm. the toughest people on earth, I would say. And are they just that tough where they're like, oh, people like trapped in the woods, like, look, it's two weeks. They'll be OK. You yeah. Know, she says they're already dead. Yeah. Like, what could we possibly right, do? Yeah. In Russia, we leave the hikers two weeks before we come. Yes. Yes. Only if they survive, they can stay in Russia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK. Now, Natalia, there is video footage of the discovery of the bodies. The faces of the hikers are blurred, but it's still kind of like an upsetting video. Okay. Um, I'm going to send it to you. Thank you. You're welcome. And it has English subtitles. From Valia's testimony on August 5th, 10 o'clock in the morning, Krizin came, said that they are wet and freezing and it is snowing. Landmarks are not visible. Collected the backpacks in the tent and began to go down. Towards the snowy valley past 10 meters, Krizen began to fall and tried to get him up, but he fell again. Koravina remaining with him and the rest. The rest were ordered to go down, but almost immediately she stopped the group and asked someone to get her. Tanya took out the tent and they covered with it. I went up to Koravina. Sasha's eyes were huge. Blank stare. Korovina felt for her pulse and said that her heart, not beating, asked to drag Vika down. I went up to her, and she bit me. I dragged her to the rest. Tatiana began to beat her head into the rocks. Dennis hid behind the stones and climbed into his sleeping bag. I crawled to Korovina, and I did not breathe. I tried to raise Tamir. Realizing that no one was moving, I began to go down to the trees, dressed and lay in a sleeping bag covered with a tent. In the morning, I went up and saw Tanya on the rocks. Dennis, Timur, Vika. Above, Sasha and Koravina. None of them rose again. Okay, sorry. I was so concentrated on reading that that I didn't actually know what I was reading. So she is saying that... So who bit her? She went up to that hiker to try to help, and then the hiker bit her, is Mm -hmm. what she's saying to the police. So in that video, you could see the bodies laying on the yeah. ground, right? Do you want to describe that to our listeners? Yeah. I mean, it just looks like a bunch of... Uh, they, it was cold, I'm assuming, because they were all wearing a bunch of clothes. So it just looks like, yeah, like big bloated bodies. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because they were wearing a lot of clothes because it's cold or if they were bloated for having been there so long. But it's definitely, yeah, like mangled hiking bodies. Right. And the faces were blurred out Mm -hmm. in that video. Thank God. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the reason why they did that is because since it took them two weeks to get to the bodies, by the time they got there, there were unfortunately maggots in the mouths and the eye sockets of all of the people. um, And the eyes were missing. 
Okay. Once the bodies were found, they were transported via helicopter to basically the Russian equivalent of a medical examiner's office to receive an autopsy. Curiously, the official cause of death for all of the hikers, except for Ludmila, was listed as hypothermia, with malnourishment being a contributing factor to their deaths. All of the deceased hikers, including Ludmila, were noted as having bruised lungs. But there is no mention of anyone having foam in their mouths or blood on their faces. Ludmila's cause of death was listed as a heart attack. Natalia, what do you make of this? Like I've been saying since the beginning, that Volga is a liar. See, okay, I thought at this point you were going to be like, the Russian government's covering something up. Not no. Valya. No, she's part of the Russian oh, government. Oh, you think, okay, you think they're one and the same. Yeah, well, because she's saying that they blood spurted out of their eyes and ears and all this stuff, and they, the girl started bashing her head against a rock. There's no way, I can't think of one way, if someone wants to comment below, like, your crackpot theory about what what would cause you to bash your head into a rock until your skull split open out of your own volition, I guess maybe unless you were having a seizure, perhaps they could say that. But I've seen someone having a seizure before and it's, I don't know, I guess they could do that, but I don't know. I don't think it would be repeatedly in the same way that I don't, yeah, I just, I feel like it's not that. And I just feel like someone else did that perhaps. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Like I said, you've set this up in a way where it's very mysterious. Congratulations. Thank you. Okay, perfect. (laughs) That's exactly what I wanted to hear because now we're going to get into the theories. Okay. Theory number one, a Russian military experiment or theory number two, a nerve agent. And I so I combine these two because they're pretty much the same thing. In either way, the Russian government is doing something in this area. So then why wasn't Valia exposed to the nerve agent? Perfect question. Proponents of this theory note that the Soviet Union, which fell in 1991, happened just two years before the Hamar Daban incident that we were discussing in this episode. Mm -hmm. So this is is very relevant to our story because Mm -hmm. it really tells us what the climate and culture was like during this time. So according to an article entitled Russia's Atomic Nightmare, 100 Missing Suitcase Nuclear Weapons by Peter Sushu for nationalinterest.org. Quote, before its collapse in 1991, the Soviet Union produced more than 27,000 nuclear weapons, along with enough weapons-grade uranium and plutonium to build three times more weapons. Because of severe economic distress, widespread corruption, lax security, and dependency on the bureaucratic system, some of these nuclear weapons and or material were lost or stolen. The Council on Foreign Relations warned that the International Atomic Energy Agency has reported more than 100 nuclear smuggling incidents since 1993, 18 of which involved highly enriched uranium. The Nuclear Threat Initiative also published a report in September 1997 that quoted former Russian National Security Advisor Alexander Lebed, who claimed that the Russian military lost track of upwards of 100 nuclear suitcase bombs. What? Lebed, who made his claims on the CBS News program 60 Minutes, suggested each of the weapons was as powerful as a one kiloton warhead capable of killing as many as 100,000 people and could be detonated by only a single person. During this period of economic turmoil and government instability, there were several documented assassinations carried out by high-ranking Russian officials— using nerve agent. Therefore, proponents of this theory hypothesize that if the strange symptoms reported by Valya are to be believed, they could be explained by either nuclear weapons, 
the presence of radiation poisoning or a nerve agent being experimented with in the area. This could also explain the bruising of the lungs found during the autopsy, since exposure to a nerve agent in particular is known to cause respiratory distress, which in turn may cause bruising on the lungs. Hmm. But why why be experimenting in the middle of the woods where there's like so many variables on people who don't matter no offense to these people they don't matter to the government right totally so that's what i have listed in the cons like uh, the points against this theory i Mm -hmm. wrote this was a popular hiking trail there were as we know there were three total groups out there that day Mm -hmm. one was natalia's group one was ludmila's group and one was just some random group that had nothing to do with these two groups Mm -hmm. so why would you choose this location for an experiment as we know, there were power lines. There was a river. Like you said, there's a lot of variables. Yeah. Why Why would you choose that particular area to experiment in? If these symptoms are to be believed, if Valya's account is to be believed, then why doesn't the autopsy reflect the presence of radiation poisoning or a nerve agent? Well, because the government's not going to say it did. They're going to say they died of hypothermia. Great point. Yeah. Yes. Great point. So it can go a lot of different directions. You, If you believe Valya... Then you say, okay, well, the government, of course, they wouldn't list that in the autopsy findings because then they'd have to admit that that's where some of the missing right. uranium is or or that they were trying to conduct nerve agent experiments to be used in future assassinations. But if you don't believe Valia, then it's like points against her that the autopsy doesn't list those things. Yeah. Yeah. Theory number three, hypothermia and mass psychosis. We know that the group was hit by an unexpected storm, and on the night of August 4th, they were unable to light a fire. It was raining all that night, and this means that the group would have gone to bed in soaking wet clothing and a freezing tent. Perhaps due to these circumstances, Sasha began to experience symptoms of hypothermia in the morning. We know that hypothermia can cause symptoms like paradoxical undressing, where just before death, the body thinks that it's burning up, causing the confused victim to begin taking their clothes off. Perhaps the convulsions that Valya reported were caused by Sasha trying to get his clothes off. We know that Ludmila looked at Sasha as her surrogate son, so it makes sense that she would be so distraught and horrified watching her son die in front of her eyes that it could have caused her to have a heart attack on top of his body. After watching two of their fellow hikers die in front of them, it makes sense that the other hikers would also panic. Could this have induced a sort of mass hysteria amongst the hikers that, coupled with the autopsy evidence of malnutrition, protein deficiency, bruised lungs, and hypothermia could have led to their deaths. Okay, so you're telling me that one of those people saw something traumatic and then just decided to bash their head into a rock until their skull split and they died, based on that theory. Yes, and I want to do a callback to the episode you did about the dancing plague. Right. In the dancing plague, people literally danced to their deaths, and they were not sick. I mean, it depends on what theory you believe, right? Right. But in the, like paranormal theory yeah they just straight up decided to dance to death Hmm. so if you can decide against all odds as a healthy human being to dance yourself to death then what's stopping you from entering a state of mass hysteria and slamming your head against a wall or a rock to death it just feels like dancing to death is so much much cooler (laughs) (laughs) more fun it's just less 
bashing your head into a rock. Like when we talk about the most torture, torturesome thing that could happen, it's like, oh, listening to this is like bashing my head into the wall. Right. right? Yeah. Like that's what we say. It is. And so I just it's hard for me to believe that something could be so bad that someone would do that. But you have heard of people bashing their heads into walls repeatedly. Right? No, I haven't. Yes. Who? Absolutely. That's why sometimes when when people go to like mental health facilities, if they're a danger to themselves or others, they get put in a straitjacket, right? Right. And they get put in padded rooms, right? Because they... Why they... would you need a padded room if you're already in a straitjacket unless you were planning on throwing yourself against a wall? So it is possible <sighs> is my point. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I guess. Now, if, it, if you're finding it hard to believe that these people could have you know, entered a state of psychosis from mass hysteria just just because they saw somebody die. Mm-hmm. Then I would also like to quote you an article that I found on researchgate.net entitled Isolated Psychosis During Exposure to Very High and Extreme Altitude, a Characterization of a New Medical Entity, published to the magazine Psychological Medicine. I could not access the full article because I'm not a student or a researcher and I wasn't going to pay like 70 bucks to read it, (laughs) but the abstract was free. So I'm going to read you the abstract. Quote, Background psychotic episodes during exposure to very high or extreme altitude have been frequently reported in mountain literature, but not systemically analyzed and acknowledged as a distinct clinical entity. Methods episodes reported above 3,500 meters altitude and with possible psychosis were collected from the lay literature and provide the basis for this observational study. Dimensional criteria of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders were used for psychosis, and the Lake Louise scoring criteria for acute mountain sickness and high-altitude cerebral edema, 83 of the episodes collected underwent a cluster analysis to identify similar groups. Ratings were done by two independent, trained researchers. Findings Cluster 1 included 51% of episodes without psychosis, Cluster 2, 22% of cases with psychosis, plus symptoms of high-altitude cerebral edema or mental status change from other origins, and Cluster 3, 28% episodes with isolated psychosis. Possible risk factors of psychosis and associated somatic symptoms were analyzed between the three clusters and revealed differences regarding the factors starvation, frostbite, and supplemental oxygen. Episodes with psychosis were reversible but associated with near accidents and accidents, sometimes resulting in death. Conclusions Episodes of psychosis during exposure to high altitude are frequently reported, but have not been specifically examined or assigned a medical diagnosis. In addition to the risk of suffering from somatic mountain illnesses, climbers and workers at high altitudes should be aware of the potential occurrence of psychotic episodes, the associated risks, and the respective coping strategies. Is it that high, though, there? You said it was 8,000 feet, right? 2,438 meters. And this study is specifically looking at 3,500 meters. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen below that. It just means that that's the particular grouping of clusters that they looked at. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I snowboard. And when you go to the mountain and you're, I guess, you go to the mountain, a lot of the times the top of the mountain is like 11,000 feet or something. But I mean, I guess you're not there for like five hours on end. You're there 
and you ski down like almost immediately. Well, and they said that the factors that contributed to psychosis in all these cases they studied was hypothermia and frostbite and the rest of it. Yes. So it's like frostbite and supplemental oxygen. Yeah. The combination of being at the high altitude, which like messes with your internal compass and it's like less oxygen or whatever combined with like hunger and all the other things is is just like leads you to psychosis right so in your example of like okay let's say we're going skiing at whatever i don't know if i don't ski but like on the so i don't know so this could sound fucking stupid but just <laughs> ima- just imagine that this makes sense okay okay you're going skiing at eleven thousand feet okay but you you're you've eaten right you're just there for like fun pleasure you're not camping out up there right you're fully dressed in warm clothing you're yeah. not going to go skiing in the rain so it's not like you're up there and then it starts raining and you're trapped right for five we're not days. chilling yeah yeah you're not hiking you're hiking up or maybe you're taking a chairlift up but then you're skiing down so you're not like carrying a hundred pounds of gear on your back mm-hmm. by foot going up through rocks and then see Part of the thing that I think that study is missing is they're saying like, oh, hiking up at this altitude with like heavy stuff and not eating makes you crazy. But what I'm saying is that I think all the participants of that were already crazy because what possesses you to want to go somewhere really high away from all of society? (laughs) It's super cold. Okay, you're eating like a granola bar or like a tin can heated bean or something (laughs) like, come on. These are not like your normal, not psycho people already. Right. 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 No, I agree with that. They were haunted to begin with, right? So maybe the, you know, that person just snapped because they were already at their breaking point. Well, if all you have to eat is a heated tin of a bean <laughs> and you're honestly, I would snap under less. Think of this, Alyssa. Like, I'm snapping to... right now. And all I did was get two hours of sleep last night. So I cannot imagine being starving on a mountaintop right. in the rain. You have to poop in a hole and bury it. Dude, or in that. some places, take a shovel and put it in a bag and then put your feces in your backpack to take with you. No. Yeah, you that's what I'm saying. Me. That's what. Okay, but that's also what I'm saying is that it's. I can totally, I would bash my head into right. a rock at that point. That's true. So it works both ways because it's, it's part of me is like those people are psychopaths already, but it's like then they wouldn't snap because they're just already living in that reality. Great but then point. the other part of me is like they were psychopaths just ready to snap at any moment. You know, that's I mean, it's a good point. It goes both ways. <laughs> Once again, this is another theory that goes both ways. And listed here under the points against this theory, I put this still doesn't explain why Valya didn't die. I know. I just... Ugh, Valya, so, this would be so much easier if she was dead. Right. Because then we'd be like, okay, it was hypoxia. Everybody yeah. was confused and had altitude sickness and was dying of starvation. So they just went nuts and died. Maybe she's like one of those people that lives to be 115 and like smokes cigarettes every day and like is racist, you know? Yeah. And I know like, those people always live forever. <laughs> right. Like, exactly. Yeah. And just like she, she was that tough bitch. You know, it could be unaffected by anything. Okay, now we're going to go to theory number four, Natalia. And I know you're not going to like this theory because it's similar to one we've discussed before that I know you didn't like. What is it? Is it a really old town? (laughs) What is it? Theory number four. Valia is simply misremembering what happened due to trauma. 
We talked about this theory in the Edward McCleary sea monster story. And I remember that you didn't like this theory, but we're going to talk about it again because I think maybe I just didn't explain it right. In I don't that. even remember. Okay, you're going to I feel like remember. my brain blocked it out because it was too traumatic for yeah, me. Yeah, you just kept saying you didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you thought it was like gaslighting. Okay. Oh, okay. 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 Whether we like it or not, there is unfortunately a direct scientific link between traumatic experiences and the creation of false memories. For example, now stick with me. Stick with me. I can already see you looking skeptical. <laughs> stick with me. Just listen to the full explanation and then, I'll, and then we'll see what you think. For example, in an article entitled Trauma, PTSD, and Memory Distortion, author Nathan H. Lentz writes the following for Psychology Today. Quote, Converging evidence demonstrates that experiences of trauma, whether a single event or a sustained stressful experience that might involve multiple trauma types, are also vulnerable to memory distortion. In fact, traumatic memory distortion appears to follow a particular pattern. People tend to remember experiencing even more trauma than they actually did. This usually translates into greater severity of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms over time as the remembered trauma grows in the mind. In another study entitled What Drives False Memories in Psychopathology, a Case for Associative Activation, researchers Henry Otgar, Peter Muris, Mark L. Howe, and Harold Merkelbach write, quote, Our review suggests that individuals with PTSD, a history of trauma, or extreme depression are at risk for producing false memories when they are exposed to information that is related to their knowledge base. Memory aberrations are notable characteristics of post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. The article goes on to say, they found that 88% of veterans changed their response to at least one event and 61% changed their response to more than one event. Importantly, the majority of those changes were from, no, that did not happen to me, to yes, that did happen to me. Not surprisingly, this over-remembering was associated with an increase in PTSD symptoms. This theory is not saying that the trauma experienced by a victim is imaginary. This theory states that the trauma is actually so bad that the person who experienced it may distort the memory in their mind. For example, a boy lost at sea with his friends may imagine that they died from a sea monster instead of by drowning, like in Brian McCleary's story discussed in episode 77. Or a combat veteran returning from war who watched his friend be blown up in front of him may imagine that they were actually killed by a mythical being like we talked about in the Vietnam War episode. And a teenager like Valya, who witnesses her friends collapse and die in front of her, may imagine that they were bleeding from their eyes and foaming at the mouth, even though they were not. Okay, Natalia, I have I'm fin- writing a scathing review on my phone right now. Hold on. I don't want to lose my track of thought. Okay, Natalia, is your scathing Yelp review of my explanation of this scientific... No, it's not. No, it's I'm, I'm not um, scathing at your explanation. Okay. I am more just... Like, I, I'm reading through the all of the... Like, I'm reading between the lines of what you're telling me. What you're telling me is that there are a bunch of scientists, okay? There are a bunch of people of order 
learned people who believe in the scientific method, people who wanted to, to devote probably 15 years of their life to going to school to become people who can do experiments, etc., they cannot begin to understand or quantify the chaos that is in a person who's chaotic. And the type of people who might experience trauma like that, whether they were balanced before or not, I think is irrelevant because after you experience something like that, it throws you off balance and I think makes you like a little bit chaotic. So the part that I was like really thinking was just bullshit was when they were talking about how the people who had like a a memory that they changed from answering they didn't have something happen to them to they did have something happen to them i cannot begin to tell you how many times i was taking a test and for no reason at all no reason i just decided to start writing stuff that wasn't true because that's how little it mattered to me you know what i mean uh-huh. just or or just to oh, make shit happen i see happen. what you're saying so you're saying that we can't take these studies seriously because the people answering the questions just may not have given a fuck right okay i, I i'm saying that it's almost impossible to quantify human emotion from and chaos into data points that are realistic and if you're taking someone who's suffered from ptsd that I mean, you're looking at someone's brain who that's just constantly jumping to the past all the time. It's not even in this present moment anymore. They might be like uh, triggered their their whole life. You know, they hear a sound and they're already in that fight or flight mode and they, immediately their body is taken back to some traumatic event, you know, where a bomb went off or whatever it was. Right. So I, I'm just saying that I don't know that these people are good data points to be doing any sort of experiment on and yeah that's that's just my thought about that well i think that that's a fair point yeah and i actually had something prepared in case case we needed to flesh this out a little more because either way i think it's an interesting theory whether it's bullshit or not it's interesting i think it's interesting and i and i agree that i do believe when something's here's the other thought that i had too and i'll say my last piece with it okay go ahead some people are just dramatic and they're just chaotic and that's just their personality. And so if I'm talking to someone and I say like, holy shit, I got hit by a car this moment, this morning. And they're like, did you actually get hit by a car? And one day I'm like, no. And one day I'm like, yes, is irrelevant because I feel like I got hit by a car. (laughs) And that's like my vibe. Okay. (laughs) Your vibe is a car crash. It could, but that's like, that's how I was explaining it. So if someone's like, Oh, like, did you actually break your arm at summer camp that summer? It doesn't matter because I felt the (laughs) same pain. That's someone who broke their arm at summer camp would feel. And that is how I'm communicating with the person I'm talking to so that they can understand better where I'm coming from. Whether or not it's true doesn't matter. It's like communicating the vibe. Okay. All right. But do you think that perhaps you communicate (laughs) that vibe Uh expressing that something happened to you that didn't actually happen to you because of either PTSD, trauma, or depression. I mean, it could be any of it could be all of it. So then you agree with this theory. I can't do that, though, (laughs) because I don't want to be pinholed into something that I don't 
because then I'm going to end up like one of the fucking people on this study where they're like, well, you said that this happened to you. And now you're saying that this didn't happen to you. I'm saying there's some people who just can't commit to anything. Okay. Regardless of whether or not they've experienced trauma, they just can't commit to anything. Maybe. I don't know. I don't want to commit to anything I'm saying either. Okay. I just don't like that theory. Okay. Okay. That's it. Okay. All right. The last piece of this theory. <laughs> the last piece of this theory that I wanted to talk about. I'm going to ask you a question. No. Okay. I'm fired up now. What? Have you ever seen somebody die? Hmm. I think so. I'm trying to think. Have I ever seen somebody die? A person? Or a dead person. Have you ever seen a dead person? Yes. Have you ever been like driving and maybe there was like a horrible accident and you just see something on the side of the road? I don't know now. Okay. Well, Perhaps. now I know because now we're calling everything I, into question. Right? I've seen, I, I've been to a funeral and seen like an open casket and seen a dead body. Okay. Um, Yeah. I've seen like tons of pictures of dead bodies too. So it's kind of hard for me to like think of whether or not I've seen a picture. No, nothing's coming to mind right now. Okay. I don't well, think so. This the only purpose of that question was okay, so I'll ask this to the listeners as well so that you guys can kind of maybe we'll try to follow the same train of thought. Um have any of you ever seen a dead body? So I will say that something that makes me think that this theory holds water mm-hmm. is because I remember one time I was driving up a freeway on ramp and I looked to my right And I saw a dude laying in the middle of the road of like a side road Mm -hmm. to the side of this on ramp, totally alone, like no cops were there. And he was just face down, like clearly deceased. Okay. Okay. I went and it shook me up. Like, I don't want to fucking see that shit in real life. Right. So I drove to my office and I immediately told my coworker, like, oh, my God, I just saw like a, a dude laying on the side of the road like deceased and mm-hmm. the cops weren't there yet like it must have just happened and as I like thought back about that memory because it had really shaken me up I remember seeing it as if I'm like from a bird's eye view up in the sky looking down at this guy like laying there and yet when I went back the next day and drove on that same on-ramp I realized that the road is super fucking close to me mm-hmm. so this memory I have in my mind of being like way up in the sky like a vulture seeing this man laying there in a puddle of blood is not accurate because I would have seen him way closer than my mind is remembering. So while that is not me saying, oh, this happened to me, oh, this didn't happen to me, Mm -hmm. what it does show is that we can't really trust a lot of the memories we have of traumatic experiences because my mind immediately did like distanced myself from it i remember that in my mind as me being really fucking far away up in the sky that's impossible my car does not fly but maybe that maybe you were like maybe you (laughs) were astrally projecting because of how traumatic it was guys i'm gonna need you guys to weigh in leave a comment on our instagram when we uh put this photo dump up and let us know do you think that this theory holds any water or do you I th- think no, it I doesn't think it, hold I think water? it definitely holds water, uh, water because like eyewitness reports are the least reliable of like any sort of evidence we have. Like usually when we have a witness who says something happened, it's like always wrong. Right. So I think that it holds water. What I'm saying is that the powers that be who care about quantifying something into a, some sort of theory that can be proved by science, like you're you're talking about raw human emotion and I just don't think it can be 
I don't think it's that easy to, I, I don't know, to quantify it. I almost think it's almost like sort of like a sacred thing. Like if we were to say, take something like love, like true love and try to like find the chemical components behind it and write it down and be like, oh, this is actually like the recipe for true love. And like you experienced that other person looking this way because you like had this chemical reaction that made you feel super attracted to them and they weren't, they, they're actually the same as they look today and you're not in love with them. So you see them this way. Like I get that that's a science behind it. I just think it's not chill and not cool and I disrespect it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. All right, guys, we're moving on to theory number five. Natalia, this theory is called the contaminated water theory. What's what water was contaminated? This theory comes from author Natasha. The Mullins. rain? Yes. Huh. This author comes from Natasha Mullins in her article I cited at the beginning of this episode from medium.com. Mullins writes, quote, this theory also relies on the rainstorm bringing toxins down, but instead it proposes that the hikers drank the toxins in their water. Lake Baikal, which sits above the mountain, is a well-known toxic waste dumping ground. Now, before I continue, I want to pause that because remember we were listening to that guy, Vlad? Yeah. He's like, Lake Baikal, it is the best freshwater lake in the whole world. Uh, but right. I tried to swim in it once and it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. I just thought that was funny. That's hilarious. So, it's a well-known toxic waste dumping ground. If this waste was washed downstream and into the water, the hikers could have accidentally drank deadly toxins with their breakfast. The contaminant could have even been one of those water-soluble nerve agents that we talked about right. in the first theory. Valentina may have survived by drinking less or by getting her water from a different location than the rest of the hikers. Most highly toxic substances take a few minutes to take effect, hence the hikers all dying a little bit after breakfast. Similar to the nerve agent theory, this toxin could have incapacitated the hikers, causing them to die from hypothermia before they succumbed to the toxin. Depending on the toxin, it may not have been visible in a standard toxicology report, especially in a country that's undergoing like a, such a crazy revolution mm -hmm. as the Soviet Union and Ru slash Russia was going through that at this right. time. Okay. However... Author Natasha says, the problem with this theory is that the deaths were an isolated occurrence. If a water source used by many tourists was so badly contaminated, it doesn't make sense that only one group would be affected by it. That's her take on it. But I would say that con doesn't really make sense because everyone started at different trailheads. I'm still thinking about the other theory before that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean... So far, is there another theory? Because so far, the nerve agent thing seems like most realistic to me. Okay, yeah. There are um, three more theories. Theory number six, and this is a, f I mean, I feel bad saying a fun one, but like this is a fun one. Okay. <laughs> Accidental ingestion of either psychedelics or poison. This theory also comes from author Natasha Mullins in the same medium.com article. And she writes... This is one of the most interesting theories, in my opinion. I found this idea from a YouTube comment and did more research to add to it. This is the only theory I know of where Valia is actually affected by what killed the hikers, eliminating some of the questions around her seemingly being a total outlier compared to the other six. Ludmila was a known forager who taught the art to her students. It's possible that one of the hikers found some mushrooms to add to their breakfast, 
which wasn't the correct variety. After eating their breakfast, the effects of the mushroom poisoning began to take hold as they were walking, causing them to hallucinate and become sick. Interestingly, a common hallucination caused by psilocybin is to see other people crying blood. Overdoses of psilocybin can cause psychosis, convulsions, cardiac arrest, and even send someone into a coma. Valentina could have survived by either eating less mushroom, having a mushroom tolerance, or even just having a genetic disposition to being less affected, wearing warmer clothing, or by running to the forest and sheltering out of paranoia. Okay, so in this theory, people who believe this theory mm -hmm. think that what probably happened is because they're out in the wilderness... There's no way they could have brought enough food for this entire expedition. So part of what they were doing to supplement food, they are like, this is a fact, yeah. was foraging. Okay. And Ludmila, the lady in charge of this hike, she was a well-known forager. Like she's like a pretty much a badass in the hiking community, yeah. which apparently is a thing. Mm -hmm. And people know her as being like a sick forager. Okay. So what could have happened is what if one of the students because she was trying to teach them about independence like this is your trip like you're going to be in charge of yourself you're going to be in charge of like implementing what i've taught you uh -huh. into helping us survive this trip they accidentally got the wrong type of mushroom and right. then she ate it because she wasn't paying attention right and they're cooking it together i mean who knows who was cooking we don't know and then they passed out and died from exposure basically yeah. like they ate the food and it takes a while if anyone who's ever taken psychedelics knows it doesn't just kick in right away yeah i think i could be the expert witness on this because i yeah. have um, a lot of experience with mas magic mushrooms and here's here's my it, it sounds plausible it does sound plausible here's my only thing is that um i have eaten a lot of mushrooms at once <laughs> a lot okay like i'm talking about a ziploc bag full of mushrooms that are meant to share between six adults and then the five of those people didn't show up so i just did it all myself i okay. had a great fucking time okay and also it was a lot of mushrooms and i didn't i didn't have a bad time and i didn't bleed like see anyone bleeding from their eyes and i didn't get convulsions or whatever and it was like a, a large quantity. So I'm just thinking that the only thing that that might sound like it's not plausible with that is that if they were taking in the same type of mushroom that I had, it would have been such a large amount that there is no that they would have to take in order to like overdose and have, you know, that like poisonous reaction, I feel like that um at least Ludmila would be like, oh, there's like literally a handful of poisonous mushrooms right here. Right. You know, does that make sense? That does make sense. It's not like a little tiny like thing that you can just hide in the rest of your food. Well, I guess let me ask you this because I don't know the answer. OK. Are there different kinds of psilocybin mushrooms or is it all just one kind? No, there's definitely different types of psilocybin. And here's where I don't have a lot of knowledge on that because I know that there are types of mushrooms that are poisonous that will kill you and you'll still hallucinate before you die. Yeah. So okay, it could have been point. one of those. But the, I was just trying to offer some insight into... Um, the amount of like like it would have had to be in like a very very potent mushroom for them to um have died from it and to the quantity being so small that the person who was like an expert forager wouldn't notice it in the food got it does that okay. make sense yeah that makes sense yeah now in the situation you're describing right now where you took the amount of mushrooms as like five people or whatever right in this scenario i think you would be valia because <laughs> this theory says <laughs> that the reason why she survived is because right. she just had a natural genetic tolerance yeah. for whatever it is that the group ate right 
Wow. Okay, so now you've become the person that you hated. Yeah. And maybe you have to rethink whether or not you think that she's guilty. I mean, hmm. Theory number seven, low frequency torture. Listeners may remember this theory from the Dyatlov Pass incident episode. Yeah. And this basically says that there is a thing called infrasound, which is basically a dog whistle for humans. Mm -hmm. So there is a frequency. I mean, people have heard of like, it's a joke, but like the brown note where like yeah. there's a frequency that <laughs> makes you shit your pants. <laughs> right. It's it's similar, yeah. except for it's something that we can't hear necessarily like we can't hear it, but yet our body can perceive it. This is real, though, because I saw on the news recently that they were trying to like ban this sort of technology that I think it was China was already using or maybe it was Russia or something. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think one of us is doing an episode this year, possibly on Havana syndrome, which mm -hmm. is kind of the same thing. Yeah. So uh, I was researching this t topic and I found an article published to a website called StopTheseThings.com. Okay. It's basically a blog spot where this guy is super mad about... <laughs> What's he mad? He's super mad about... <laughs> about wind turbines. What about them? That have been... I guess they've been installed near his neighborhood oh, in they Australia. Make him, they make you go crazy? I have heard of this. Yeah. I feel... That's why I feel bad laughing because I'm sure like this would fucking suck, but it's right. just a whole website dedicated to how much he hates wind turbines. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. So he alleges that wind turbines create something called infrasound, which is a sound that is imperceptible to the human ear, but that still affects the human body. The guy who runs this blog, whose name I could not find anywhere on his blog writes the following on the subject, quote, each organ in the body has its own acoustic resonance in the infrasonic range under 20 hertz. The human eye resonates at 18 hertz, just below the threshold of human hearing. Disturbances in the eye, as well as the ear caused by infrasound are well documented. It is widely known that specific infra infrasound resonances directed at the brain can produce fear, anxiety, anger, and so on. Infrasound has been recognized and used as a weapon by the U.S. military. It was found to produce a wide range of ill effects. Sleep deprivation to the point of torture, harm to the lungs and heart. Hmm. Infrasound, however, was unreliable as a weapon and was abandoned. It didn't have the same ill effects on everyone. The same appears to be the case with infrasound produced by industrial wind turbines. Some individuals are more affected than others. Hmm. I'm sorry to this man. I don't mean to be laughing at you. That sounds like it would really fucking suck. I just, it, it's a whole website about wind turbines and how yeah. much he doesn't like them. Yeah. 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 I mean, that that is plausible. I, I like that theory as well. I do. And, and it makes sense because it, he notes that the reason why the U.S. was like, never mind, we're not going to use this as a torture device is because not everyone reacts the same. Mm -hmm. So could Valia have just been the one person who didn't react the same? You know, remember when they... They camped in a spot that was like barren for no reason. Maybe it's barren for a reason. Like maybe there is some yeah. sort of nerve agent or there's some sort of infrasound or something there that keeps living things from thriving in that area. That's a great point as well. Our final theory, something paranormal may have happened to the group. Okay. And in that category, you could go any direction you want. You could say right. there was a ghost that attacked Demon some of them. possession. Uh, Valya herself is telekinetic and like fucking choked everyone to death. Right. Or you might say, could they have entered a time slip? 
And the reason why this theory, I think, is the outstanding one of the paranormal category is because as we've discussed in our paranormal time slips episode that you did last year, something that normally precedes a time slip is a change in weather, an unexpected change in weather. That's true. Yeah, there's always like a a thunderstorm before something like that happens. Exactly. Like the weather was totally clear. And then all of a sudden we entered an area that had a crazy monsoon, even though that wasn't on the calendar that day. So they like just time slipped to a nerve agent time or time slipped to some time where something happened. I don't know where something happened to them. And the only one who was able to get out of the time slip was Falia. Who Mm, knows? Right. She's still in the time slip. Now, before I asked you for your opinion, I just want to cite some additional information that I found on this topic. I was able to find an article entitled Hypothermia or Mysticism Expedition by Ludmila Korovina by an unknown author published to parky-himku.ru. In this article, the author, whose name is not listed, states that they were able to actually find and speak with some of the people involved in this story who, as of 2020, are still living. The article reads as follows. We managed to find Valentina Udochenko herself on the internet. Now the girl who escaped in the mountains on Lake Baikal has a family and children of her own. And Valentina has no desire to talk about her story. Quote, Do you think I want to remember this nightmare? I had to leave, change my whole life. I don't want to remember it. However, Valentina also noted, Our instructor was of a very high rank, and everything that happened was not her fault. Then everything would be fine with us if there was the weather that the forecasters promised. The old relay tower helped Valentina Udochenko to orient herself and get out to the river, where she was picked up by tourists from Kiev, which we talked about. And they interviewed the guy who first saw her in the forest, Alexander Kvitsnitsky, and he said, quote, We often remember Valya. She is a real smart girl, and she did everything right to save herself. She has nothing to blame herself for. What happened to her was not her fault. It was the forecasters is what I'm hearing. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So, Natalia, that makes a total of eight theories. Out of everything we talked about, what is, you can either say your favorite theory, or you can say what you think, what you personally think happened. Um, my favorite theory, I think, is probably the, the nerve, I think they time slipped to a a time when there was a nerve agent there. Or like a toxic atmosphere. Right. Maybe they time slipped to a parallel universe where the air is made of poison psilocybin (laughs) mushrooms. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. It's very interesting. It really, it really is. Yeah. I mean, those forecasters must feel really bad. Right. I mean, God must feel really bad that he decided (laughs) to send a monsoon to Mongolia for no fucking reason. Yeah. 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 I can't begin to understand the the greater workings of the universe, but I do respectfully decline (laughs) that other theory. (laughs) Not because I don't think that it's valid or that it's scientific, but I'm saying that because it's scientific it's that's why I don't like it yeah you reject it right got it got it yeah I think that all the theories are very compelling I don't know what the right one is but I would love to hear all of our listeners theories right if you guys can go to at let's get haunted on Instagram once the photo dump for this episode goes live please leave a comment telling me what your theory is because I feel like this episode is Dyatlov Pass yeah but one level harder 
I feel like I'm at like I'm in the mindset of Dyatlov Pass again. Well, again, it's like Dyatlov Pass. If one of the people that had been attacked was a murderer, was a- <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Yeah, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, BRB gotta go dismantle the wind turbine industry uh, by myself. Bye. Bye.